Thanks for listening to Coming to Church Podcast. We hope that this message is exactly what you need to hear. Good morning. It is a glorious morning, right? It is awesome to see that we've had such a joyful experience so far. We've seen glory. We've been able to sing Hosanna. And it is today that we can rejoice and be glad. Amen? Amen. Amen. So today, we are thinking about this word, glory. It is an amazing word, glory, the glory of God, the glory we've seen in Jesus. And if you are here and haven't been with us yet, we have gone through the book of John. We have started back with the seven signs, and now we have shifted into the book of glory. In chapter 12, we have shifted and are looking now at the glory of Jesus. You think about that word glory, though. When we started way back at the very beginning, Jonathan gave the the sermon about glory. And this definition, I think, is helpful to think about. When we think of that word that can be so abstract to us, what is glory? The absolutely perfect inward or personal excellency of Christ. The absolutely perfect inward or personal excellency of Christ. The majesty of Jesus, right? And so in the book of John, John even sets it up right at the beginning in John chapter 1 with this verse. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, fully human, fully divine, fully God. And that is one of the main themes of John, is to get us to understand more and more what it means that Jesus was fully man and fully God. But how do we see his glory in his humanity? John does this in such an excellent way. We are not really going to preach today on Palm Sunday, though that is a moment of glory that we see Jesus entering Jerusalem. But we have actually been looking at various stories all along, right up through Holy Week. We have started even these past few weeks, if you were with me a, a couple of weeks ago, with the washing of Jesus, Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And then these last few weeks actually were more about Jesus' teaching and explanation of his glory, seen as he received it from God. But today I get to go back to less of a teaching of, of glory and more back into an action of glory, which is something I really like. I like narrative, I like stories, and I particularly like it when we see an action of glory. We can see the different responses, we can see different interactions when we see an action, a moment where we are not necessarily told this is glory, but we are seeing it and understanding it. And so we are going from last week, ending with the Last Supper, where now Jesus is taking his disciples into that garden called Gethsemane. Now, when we often think about Gethsemane, it's that garden where we often picture Jesus in the suffering, in anguish, in sorrow, crying out to God in a prayer, not my will but yours be done. Take this cup from me. All of those things that we recognize where he is truly in that human moment praying out to his father. But John does something very different. He is not focusing on that as much as a moment of glory that coincides with those other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we're going to read today from John chapter 18 about this moment in the garden when Jesus is going to be arrested. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. 
On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, glory, your glory, may it be here today as we study your word, as we see what it is that you want to show each one of us. May your glory be revealed, may we receive it and reflect it in Jesus' name, amen. And so we have this moment of glory, which actually looks more like hopelessness. It actually looks like a desperate situation, but suddenly we see Jesus in almost an unnervingly filled with power and authority in this situation. And so how are we going to look at this passage? Well, I came up with these three different ways, which is always a good thing with a pastor, right? You get three points. <laughs> the I am, they're not, are you. So those three, I am, they're not, but are you? Now, what do I mean? Well, we're going to start with I am. As I said in the other Gospels accounts, John's main theme and thesis here is Jesus is God. He complements those other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they bring out more of that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus the Son of Man. But here, John is actually pushing his readers to understand Jesus is completely God. And thus, we see John portraying Jesus in this passage in different ways. So there's some clues in this passage that lend itself to understanding that how is he doing this? How is John showing us Jesus is God? Well, let me give you a few. First, it talks about how Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, knowing all that was going to happen to him. If you remember, the last time I preached was when we were talking about the washing of the disciples' feet, and it said almost something similar. It said, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so what did he do? He served. He washed his disciples' feet. He knew, and then he acted. In the same way we have here, Jesus knew what was about to happen, and yet he didn't run. He actually went out. He came out and addressed the people. 
And this is an illustration of him even being in control of the situation. He is proactively asking the questions that they're supposed to be asking, right? He is the one initiating. He is the one actually addressing those who are about to arrest him. Now, another indicator here, which is a little technique that was fascinating to look at, was in this passage, it talks about how Jesus, when he said, if you're looking for me, let these other men go. Because then it says, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. Now, where do we often hear that? We usually hear that more like in the Synoptic Gospels, mainly Matthew, who is quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, to show something is being fulfilled. That he's proving Jesus is the Messiah based off something from the past. Well, here, in this instance, it is actually Jesus' own words that John is quoting. Giving it that level of authority. Saying this is, in essence, God's word that he is repeating, which is his own word. So he's using that as a way to show that Jesus is God. Next, he's claiming the cup. If you remember, in the other Gospels, we hear about him saying, take this cup from me. He's praying to God, asking for his help. But then, here, he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's, he is standing as though he understands now. He's gone through the process, and he's coming in a resolute way, saying, it is time. No longer are we wrestling then this is a little instance that is, is interesting because as you know, we've, if you were with us, we talked about the seven signs that led up to chapter 11. And then at chapter 12, we've pivoted into this time of glory. Well, in the other gospels, we see this moment where Peter, being impulsive as he is, cuts the man's ear off, right? And if you've read other, uh, of the other accounts, you know that Jesus actually takes a moment and heals the ear. But John doesn't choose to bring that up. He does bring up his name, which was nice. His name is Malchus. But he doesn't talk about that his ear was healed. Why? Well, in this instance, I feel like this is a crescendo that John is leading us to. He used the seven signs, the last being the raising of Lazarus, to show this trajectory, to show us that Jesus is God and even what is about to happen in the last and most glorious sign coming up next week. Stay tuned. But all of that, he didn't want to stop and pause and share this one other little instant of a miracle because he wanted to stay focused on what was most important. And that was the glory of Jesus. And finally, which is what we're going to be talking about, is that Jesus uses this expression to show a connection to God. He says, I am. I am. Now, where does that come from? The words, I am. Well, we have to go back a little ways, back into the Old Testament, back into Exodus, where, Jesus, or where God meets Moses for the very first time. Now, if you remember this story, back when God meets Moses, he does it in the most interesting way, right? He could have come to Moses in any way he chose, using any element of nature. He could have come in a waterfall, in a bird. He could have shared good news of any kind of fashion, but he chose a specific element in nature. Fire, right? He came in the form of fire in a burning bush, but the bush was not burning up. Why fire? Why was God, his first introduction to Moses, his first introduction even here where we're going to get to his first introduction to his name, does he use fire? 
God's holy presence or his glory is most represented and manifested through this idea of fire. Fire has the power to destroy and yet also bring warmth and life. It is the power that renews and refines, but it is also the possibility of danger. And so here we have God revealing his holiness through the substance that often we can't even today fully understand, describe, or define. If you've ever stopped and think, thought about it, I actually went online to try and figure out what really is fire, right? And there's no good explanation out there that I found. Now, if you want to come to me later and teach me, I'm happy to learn about fire. But the idea of fire, there's a few understandings of combustion and all of these principles of how does fire come about. In fact, the only thing that I saw was that there's this triangle of fire, of what needs to happen in order to create fire, which are heat, fuel, and oxygen. And so these things combined create some kind of, you know, reaction, a chemical reaction that produces flame, there's vapor, there's nitrogen, there's carbon dioxide, but really it's a very inexplicable understanding of how this, this is it plasma, is it gas, what is going on here? Well, guess what? I think that this is a very amazing thing that God uses, because even now, he is so inexplicable. We don't understand him fully. But he also does something amazing here. If you remember with the burning bush, the bush never burnt up. So in our triangle where we have fuel, God is not even needing to depend upon anything in order to be present, right? He doesn't need the fuel of wood or, or the bush. Then we see his manifest in glory with the, the, the pillar of fire. Again, nothing to fuel it but himself. And so we see clearly how almost there is that sense that God is drawing near, being very present, and yet also remaining holy. And what does God say out of this fire to Moses? Moses comes and asks him, well, who am I supposed to say is sending me to the people of Israel? Who are you? What is your name? And he says, I am who I am. Or in essence, I do exist and have existed. I am in being and a being. The word eya is a is the Jewish Hebrew word for I am that Moses would then translate to tell the other people that his name is Yahweh, right? Yahweh. The very name indicates the sense of being present. God's essence is all about powerful, personal presence. God is, has a powerful yet personal presence. And he wanted that from the beginning. His very name reveals that I am. And yet that name is also unnameable. It is a name that almost gives us an indicator that we cannot contain God with fire, with glory, with his holiness. In the several passages, Exodus 19, it talks, Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood in front of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled. In Exodus 24, the eyes of the sons of Israel saw the appearance of the glory of the Lord like it was a consuming fire on the mountain. And then finally in Exodus 40, we see a different image, not fire, but a cloud. And yet such a powerful cloud that it covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses, who was the closest to God, could not enter the tabernacle because of the glory. 
Yahweh, glory. Why do I bring up all of that? Well, this brings up us to this point, the very point of where we are with Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. He's that great glory, the holiness, the power, set apart and yet present. If you have any other ideas of like, well, is this really true? Here's another couple examples. In this story about the garden, Jesus says to those around him, when he says the words, I am, what happens? The soldiers, the people who came to arrest him fall back and fall down. A whole crowd of people falls. I don't think they just all tripped in the dark over some, some roots or something. And they fell by the power of his word saying, I am. The very hearkening back to that moment of I am when, you, when Moses had no choice but to bow down in the holy presence of God. But now if we take it even from that context of that moment in the garden to a broader sense in the book of John, we see something even more amazing. Something we didn't get to have a chance to actually focus on because we've looked at the seven signs, we're looking at the glory, are these other statements that Jesus made, seven statements in John, called the I am statements. What are they? Well, let's go through them quickly. They are, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And last week, Bruce preached on I am the true vine. Now all of those are not only statements Jesus makes that reveal he is God, but it also reveals the character of God. It reveals more than just him saying, this is who I am. It's revealing a characteristic of God. What do I mean? Well, when he says I am the bread of life, he's saying I am the sustainer and provider as light, I am the guide and the illuminator. As the door, I'm the gateway and protector. As the shepherd, I'm a caretaker and a leader. The resurrection, I'm the catalyst to new creation. The way and the truth is a conduit, and the vine is that source of life. He is expressing not only the fact that he is Yahweh, but he is expressing Yahweh's very character, his essence. And finally, there's one extra little statement that Jesus makes, not as an I am something, but he then, in case you had a, any doubt, he has this interaction with the Jewish people in John chapter 8, where they're coming to him and basically saying he's a demon. He has a demon in him. There's something wrong here. He is not actually speaking truth. This cannot be right. And they go to him and he says to them, well, if you keep my word, you'll never see death. And then they come back with him saying, wait, 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 wait. You must have a demon because Abraham died. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham who died? And Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom I say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar to you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see this day. He saw it and was glad. They said, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me you're not only not yet 50 years old and yet you have seen Abraham? And here's what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. 
And so we have all of these pictures in John of Jesus leading the people to continuously understand again and again, he is Yahweh. And here in the garden, he is synthesizing all of those things to see that his listeners fully understand, fully man and fully God. Where the other gospels display his agony and sorrow as a human, here John is showing he is God himself, completely in calm authority in the situation. It is Jesus, I am, who is taking up the cup, the very punishment for the sin that these evil people are doing to him now. Jesus, I am, is revealing his glory, being willing to go to the cross. It is Jesus, I am, who is fulfilling those callous words that Caiaphas said, it is better for one man to die for all the people. And which people is he willing to die for? Again, those ones who are at this very moment coming to evil, in evil to arrest him. And that's what leads us to the next point. I am, they're not. They're not. Who's not? Well, in this very brief section of scripture, when John is expressing his understanding of the scene in the garden, he chooses to actually say a couple of times who is coming to arrest Jesus. And we have here the picture of two parties who usually would be at odds with each other. But what happens when we have a common enemy, right? They come together. And both of them want to get rid of the man who is undermining that political, that social, that religious status quo of the day. On the one hand, we have the detachment of soldiers, and then we have the officials, right? The chief priests and the Pharisees. We have a detachment of soldiers with the commander and then the Jewish leaders. We then name some Jewish leaders of the high priest, Caiaphas and Annas. And later, we're not in this passage, but right next door is that person called Pilate. And so we have these two juxtapositions, right? These two people groups that I believe John is using to show something to us. Here is a crowd, and yet the two groups we have are the religious and the irreligious. The Romans and the Jews. The Jews are the religious of the day, like the parable that Jesus shared of the two sons, right? We have the parable of the prodigal son, the time when Jesus is talking about a boy, a man who takes his father's wealth and leaves, comes back eventually actually wanting to kind of earn his way back into the family. But then we have the older brother who has stayed, but also has the same heart motivation of wanting his father's money more than he wants his father, and actually is indignant against his father. And yet, what happens to this entire group when Jesus says, I am? They all fall back. They all get the sense of that power of God. They fall. But then, what do they do? They had the choice maybe in that one moment to be humble, to submit, to remain on the ground maybe and turn in a kneeling posture to worship Jesus, to recognize who this man is. But what does it say they do? They get up again and they continue with the very evil purpose that they had in mind. Isn't that somewhat like us? On the one hand, we can be confronted with something in our lives where we are saying, wow, Jesus is awesome. I've experienced something miraculous. I understand something incredible that I never understood before. I've seen things that I have never seen before. And then time goes by, 
And we just get back up and we can explain that away. It was just some event. It wasn't anything really that important. Or maybe it's the other thing that Jesus is actually taking a moment in your life to knock you down, to stop you from sinning, to saying you're not going in the right direction. But what do we do? We get up again and continue to pursue our pleasures, our own selfish purposes. It reminds me, I don't know, you might be dating me there, it's a song in the 90s of a British kind of drinking song. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. See, some of you I can tell, you know it. <laughs> but that song reminded me of this, the idea that that song too is like, we get up again, but it's not for anything good. We're not doing something positive here to get up again. It's the idea that we're just keeping that fulfilling. We want to be filled up with something. We're searching. We're empty and never satisfied, right? So John cleverly weaves this narrative with those two distinct groups the religious, the irreligious, in order to come to this point of asking you, are you? The first question of are you could be, are you a religious or irreligious person? Are you relying on that resume of goodness that you think you need to do something in order to earn favor with God? Or you may be a follower of Jesus that feels like, oh, I've got to prove myself to God. Using then, other the, you, you start wandering into your own ability to say, it's all about me, it's my pride, I need to do this, and it ends up getting into the realm of gossip, perhaps, or judgmental attitudes towards other, or arrogance of knowledge, even of the Bible. Or are you the irreligious? here today thinking, well, I'm here today, I'm checking the box, but Monday to Saturday, it's, it's my life, it's what I desire, I'm going to work for the weekend, I'm going to drink, I'm going to just work for my IRA, living for myself, for money, for sex, for licentious, anything that, that I feel is rightfully mine. And somewhat, guess what? In one day, we can flip-flop between those two things, right? We can be religious, irreligious, and then back and forth. The next question of are you, how are you now responding to this? How are you responding? Are you responding? Are you wrestling? Are you receiving? Or are you reflecting? Let's go back to those I am statements where Jesus says, sometimes we read something in the Bible and we kind of gloss over and we almost think, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Okay, well, that's great. That's God. That's Jesus. But that really doesn't have much to do with me. He's the bread. But what does that mean? Well, there's always the question that follows when Jesus says, I am. The question, are you, is right there along with it. Are you desiring, are you wrestling are you re receiving or are you reflecting? What do I mean? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Our three possibilities here of wrestling could be that you're sitting here starving, not wanting to take that bread of life, or unsure, who is this Jesus? Or are you eating? You're here today, you've received Jesus, you're enjoying Jesus, you're accepting, you understand this, under, this relationship, so you're enjoying the eating but perhaps you're not yet feeding others. So are you wrestling today with the possibility of even rejecting Jesus and his love and his grace that he offers you? Are you here today feeling full in Jesus, receiving his love and grace through personal prayer maybe, through meditation, through silence, through solitude, through fellowship with others? That is good, we should always be receiving. But what happens if we only receive? Well, we are overeating perhaps. We get complacent. 
We expect to consume and then leave. If you're receiving today, praise God. That is awesome. We always need to be receiving, but it should not stop there. Are you now reflecting Jesus, reflecting his glory? Not only are you filled, but you're overflowing. You're overflowing to be able to say, I am ready to feed others. As one pastor I remember saying, said, I am just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I am just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Are you reflecting the love and glory of Jesus by showing grace and mercy and transforming power, reaching out, serving, going, telling, praying for others? Now you may say, this is great. I like this you know, analogy, but it doesn't quite fit what I'm thinking. Well, guess what? Jesus gave seven I am statements, so you hopefully can fit one of these. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, are you wrestling by stumbling in the dark? Are you receiving by walking with Jesus? Or are you even going further and being a guide yourself and guiding people? Jesus said, I am the door. Are you standing at the door, not entering? Or are you entering that door? Or even more so, are you welcoming others to come along with you into that door? The good shepherd, are you scurrying away from, from Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Or are you even taking the step of shepherding others to come with you? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Are you there stopping dead in your tracks to not respond? Are you responding to his wonderful invitation of grace? Or in fact, are you bring, being the life-giving message of hope to other people? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Are you sitting here today more in suspicion? Are you suspecting and not quite believing truth? Are you believing? Or are you actually even going further and speaking the truth in love? And finally, the vine. Are you here severing yourself from Jesus? Are you abiding like Bruce shared last week, abiding in Jesus? Or are you even going further and now cultivating the richness of who Jesus is to want others to be abiding as well. Wrestling, receiving, reflecting. All of us are in one of those spots. All of us should be challenged to think of the next spot we could be in. And I hope that you are truly, if you're in the space today where you are wrestling, I hope you are truly wrestling and not at the point of rejecting. You may be starving, stumbling, Standing, scurrying, stopping, suspecting, or even severing the possibilities of joy being offered to you. But guess what? Jesus is the one who's going to constantly pursue and bring you that light and life and love. If you are receiving today, praise God, that means that Jesus, you have been knocked down, but Jesus is there ready to kneel there next to you with hope and strength to help you walk, to follow, respond, believe, and abide in him. Are you going to allow that, or are you going to get up again and resist? And finally, the reflecting. Are you here today, filled with that love of Jesus, ready to take that next step, ready to begin prayerfully considering what does it mean to feed, to guide, to shepherd, to give, speak, or cultivate? Now remember, you can't reflect something you haven't received. 
And it's always a back and forth, hopefully always, through that faith and repentance walk that we are receiving and then reflecting. Looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jesus said, I am. He is the great I am. And he does not yet proclaim his divinity in such a way as to force obedience and lord over us. But he proclaims his divinity along with his humanity in the humblest manner by becoming that true and final sacrifice. Jesus, I am Yahweh, came out to his accusers knowing what was going to happen. Jesus, I am Yahweh, declared himself to be Yahweh, demonstrating his power. Jesus, I am Yahweh, gave himself up as that true and final sacrifice for you. Through his spirit, we who follow Jesus can live a life of faith and repentance, relying on the spirit to receive and to reflect Christ's glory. Jesus is coming to you today, giving himself to you to see, are you willing to open yourself up to his glory, willing to receive it and reflect it? Are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus, Yahweh, we come before you today knowing that we are the ones who have been stumbling and standing and rejecting you. And yet you came in the midst of that standing with that power of glory and holiness, knocking us down. And I pray today that when we are knocked down, we will not get back up again to resist you, to stand in defiance against you, to push back in our own sinful, evil natures, but rather we would be in that submissiveness in open arms to receive you, but not to just stop there, Lord Jesus, to receive you with great joy, faith, humility, repentance, but then also, Father, then to reflect you to others. Use us this day, Father God. Change our hearts from the inside out so that we can truly receive and reflect your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. For more ways to connect, visit our website at covenantdoylestown.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.